Hey, we are starting a new series in the book of Colossians, so if you have your Bibles or you want to turn there, you may, uh, with the Pew Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles on the outside table that you're free to take. We would love for you to have one so you can, one, make sure you're reading it yourself, but also, two, you can make sure that we're not making stuff up here on Sunday mornings. You can actually follow along and uh, know that what's being taught to you is coming from God's Word. But as we said a couple times already, we have about 20 women on the women's retreat right now. So I have a picture here. They're at Sandy Cove. Uh, They are enjoying themselves. They are being renewed spiritually. And it's been wonderful to have Christine Huber, who's the wife of the director of our network, Steve Huber, uh, lead that. And so it's wonderful. So if you're like, why are all these guys coming in a little bit late and groggy? That's probably why. Uh, I spent some time, I spent eating yesterday making eggs for dinner, and eating them with a spoon. So you know how I'm doing, but that's how things have been going this weekend. Hopefully for the men's retreat, I'm sure it won't be as ridiculous as that. Um, We might eat eggs with spoons on the men's retreat, but I doubt women will be doing that here at home. But we're in Colossians 1 today. We're going to be focusing in on starting on verse, uh, verse 9, and we're coming off of Easter and the Gospel of Luke. And so in Easter, we learn about the risen Jesus. And so, that Jesus didn't remain dead after he died. He actually rose again from dead. And, and this is different, right? It's not that Jesus was resuscitated or like everyone thought he was dead, but he really wasn't. It was like this big fake out. No, Jesus actually died and he actually rose from the dead. And if that is true, there's something that changes in us that should change in us. And so what we want to focus on this series and the theme of this series is that the risen Christ transforms us. That's it. It's simple. That's why we call it transformed. Jesus has risen from the dead, and he transforms us. So what we're going to talk about next week is how Jesus transforms our morality. The week after that, we're going to talk about how Jesus transforms our desires. But, and the week after that, we're going to talk about how Jesus transforms our relationships, all using the book of Colossians. But this week, we're going to talk about how Jesus transforms our identity. Our identity. It seems like everywhere in the world, everyone is trying to figure out their identity. You hear about sexual identity, racial identity is a big thing, even spiritual identity. We're all trying to answer this question, who am I? In this universe where I'm a small speck, who am I? Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but in movies, When people are trying to answer the question of their identity, I don't know, for some reason, they're always looking at water. Have you noticed that? So one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite comedies is Zoolander, where he, where Derek Zoolander looks into a puddle in the street, and he says, he sees his reflection, he says, who am I? And if you remember the movie, if you've seen it, his reflection responds, I don't know. (laughs) Or you think about Disney's Moana. Moana, again, looking out into water. Before she shouts out, I am Moana. She asks, thank you very much. Thank you. She asks, who am I? Who am I? Moana, Derek Zoolander, you and I are all trying to figure this out. See, something inside of us wants to discover our identity. 
But often our identity can feel elusive. And we see that in our world where there's this constant searching for identity. But the Bible says that God gives us an identity. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are in Christ. It means we're united to Christ, and that becomes our identity. So the risen Jesus, the risen Christ, transforms our identity. And what I want us to understand today, what I want you to take away today, is that a transformed identity is the only thing that gives you the love and freedom you're looking for. Only an identity that's been transformed by the risen Jesus will give you the love and freedom you're looking for. And so I want to talk about three things today. I want to talk about the marks of a transformed identity. I want to talk about the location of a transformed identity. And then lastly, the purpose of a transformed identity. So let's jump in at verse 9 in Colossians 1. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So stop right there. Paul is writing this letter. Paul the Apostle is writing this letter, and he's writing it along with Timothy, who's a brother in Christ. But Paul particularly is in prison right now or under house arrest. And the reason he's under house arrest is because he's been going around with this wild claim that Jesus is Lord. And you and I say that, we may hear that in church all the time, oh, Jesus is Lord, he's my Lord, uh, I believe in Jesus, my personal Lord and Savior. But when Paul says Jesus is Lord, it's actually bigger than that. It's actually more political than that because what Jesus is actually saying, when you say someone else is Lord, it's saying that Caesar is not Lord. So whenever Jesus, Paul says Jesus is Lord, it implicitly means Caesar is not. And if you can imagine, if you know anything about the Romans, that gets you in a lot of trouble. And so Paul is under house arrest. And he writes this letter to the Christians in Colossae, which is, if you don't know, is in southwestern Turkey. But Paul, interestingly, unlike a lot of other churches, he never met the Colossians. He never met the Colossian Christians. But he receives this report from Epaphras, which verse 7 tells us. And he hears about how they put their faith in Jesus and how they, they're trans. Their identity has been transformed in him. But now what the Colossians are experiencing, they're experiencing this pull by cultural pressures. The Colossians, mostly Gentiles, if not all Gentiles, have left paganism, but they're feeling the pull to go back into paganism, back into licentiousness, back into doing whatever they want and whatever they feel like. Maybe you've heard of that. But they're also feeling the pull to move into legalism by legalistic Christians. Christians who have taken on the marks of Judaism. And they're saying, okay, you're not a pagan anymore. You should be, you should look and act like a Jew. And Paul says, hold on a second. That's not what the gospel is. If you hear for our series in Galatians, we talked about that a lot, that gospel is not legalism and is not licentiousness. It's something so much more. And it gives us the freedom that we're looking for oftentimes in licentiousness, in doing whatever we want, but it also gives us the framework and the boundaries in order to continue to please God. And Paul's saying, even though I never have met you, I care about you, and I haven't stopped what? Praying for you. 
we haven't stopped praying for you. And he says, we haven't stopped praying for you in two ways. One, that you be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's what he says in verse 9. Here Paul is calling them back to Scripture and the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, you, I want you to know God's will for your life. So know God better. Talk to Him. Experience in Him. Understand Him through Scripture. But he says, that also, number two, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Walk is a Christian way of saying, I want you to live a certain way. In a way that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus and you've been united with Him, you live a certain way that reflects that. I want that for you, he's saying. I'm praying for that for you. And these are the marks of a transformed identity where he picks up in verse 10. It says, Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, to all, for all endurance and patience with joy and giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life, in light. A transformed identity is fruitful, joyful, and thankful, Paul says. When you have a transformed identity, when this is happening in your life, here's the marks, Paul says. You're fruitful, you're joyful, and you're thankful. So if your identity has been transformed by the risen Christ, certain marks should be in your life. We should see certain things. So when you look at me and you see my wedding ring, my wedding ring is a mark that I belong to someone else, my wife, Amanda. And Paul's saying when people look at us, they should see that we belong to someone else, Jesus. We should be living in a way that pleases the person we belong to. So first, he says our behaviors and our beliefs should change. He says we're supposed to bear fruit in doing good works. And our behavior is supposed to change. So that's things like being a friendly neighbor, caring for the poor and those in need, sharing your faith, being generous. Those are marks of following Jesus. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, which is on the screen, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your what? Good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As people with transformed identity, we do good works. Not to save us, but out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. So that people will look at you and me and see that we belong to someone else. And check this. Here's what Jesus says, though. We do that so people give glory to you? No. Give glory to me? No. Give glory to liberty? No. Give glory to God. People should give glory to God because you're there. Wherever that is. Because you live in their neighborhood, they should give glory to God. Because you work the same job as them, they should give glory to God. Because you go to the same school, your kids go to the same school as them, they should give glory to God. And do people give glory to God because you're there? It's a question you should ask yourself. 
Do people give glory to God because I am there? Sometimes we say here at Liberty, would the neighborhood even know if we were gone? Would they even care? And I hope they would. Do people give glory to God because you're there? Or do they say, I want nothing to do with his God because he's there? I want nothing to do with her God because he, she's there. Because he's judgmental. Because she's argumentative. Because they are uncooperative. I want nothing to do with their God because of them. And Paul says that our behavior should change if our identity is transformed, but our beliefs should change too. We should be increasing in what we know about God. So this is a call to study Scripture. Spending time in Scripture, reading it, reading a few verses a day. We're not just talking about getting the verse of the day on your Bible app. We're talking about actually spending time reading it, understanding it, going to commentaries or go asking somebody who may know more than you, a seasoned Christian in the faith, and asking them what it might mean. And spending time in prayer. We're finding other ways to grow closer to God, like silence and solitude, like fasting. But our beliefs about him should change as we get to know him better. We should never assume that what we know about God now is who God is. That God is so unknowable in many ways that we continue to search, we continue to find, Jesus says. So Paul prays for that. He, wants, he says our, we should be fruitful or we should see our beliefs and behaviors change. But he also says as we face difficulty, God gives us strength and endurance for the long haul. But it's interesting, he says it, that you, he gives that to you. But he says to have strength and endurance with joy. With joy. Where money's tight, I lost my job, my family wants nothing to do with me, I'm battling cancer, but I'm not just surviving, I'm thriving because I'm overflowing with joy. Could you imagine the difference that would make in your life? If you didn't just tolerate your circumstances, if you didn't just say, I'm just going to survive my circumstances, but you said, I'm going to thrive and I'm going to be overflowing with joy, the difference that would make how you would see your circumstances differently. And then Paul says, lastly, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So giving thanks. Look at it again. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Complaining about things on Facebook? No. Arguing about politics? No. Convincing others about your opinions on mass? Is that the mark of the church? No. Peddling conspiracy theories? No. Giving thanks is a mark of a transformed identity. I once knew a brother in Christ who when he would go to the mall or he would go to a store and he had the park all the way in the other side of the parking lot because the whole parking lot was full, who wouldn't complain about his spot like I would. 
he would get out and he would thank God that he had legs strong enough to walk to the entrance. That's a mark of a transformed identity. I'm not going to complain about my circumstances. I'm not going to complain about my job. I'm not going to complain about my boss. I'm not even going to complain about my parking spot. I'm going to give God thanks. That's evidence of a transformed identity. So we have the marks of a transformed identity, but there's the location of a transformed identity. So look at verse 13. Listen to this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. A transformed identity is all about location. Realtors will tell you all, they'll just say location, 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 location. Identity is the same thing. It's location, location, location. Your identity can be in one or two locations based on this verse. One, it could be in the kingdom of Satan or the domain of darkness, as Paul calls it, or it could be in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of his beloved son. And the Bible says that we're all born in Satan's kingdom. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, we're all born naturally in Satan's kingdom, and that kingdom is filled with death, sin, guilt, and shame. But do you know what Satan does in his dominion when it comes to your identity? He intentionally confuses you. He intentionally confuses us. So in 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He's talking about Satan. Satan has blinded the mind of unbelievers. He's intentionally confusing people. To what? Keep them from seeing the light of the glory, or the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan doesn't want your, your identity to be transformed. He wants you to stay under control in his kingdom. So he keeps you confused so you can't get out. So God had to do what? God had to transfer you out. Think about that. You and I are born in Satan's kingdom. And Satan, in his kingdom, intentionally confuses you in terms of your identity. So what did God do? What did God do? God transferred you out of there. So let me just pause and say for a second. When it comes to finding identity, the fact that we're all born in sin and we're all born in the kingdom of Satan and we're all born where Satan's intentionally confusing us about who we are, it's important for us to remember who have been transferred out of Satan's kingdom into God's kingdom that when non-Christian friends or your family members or people in this world are confused about their identity, we shouldn't mock them, we shouldn't ridicule them, we shouldn't condemn them. Our hearts should break for them because Satan is intentionally confusing them. And that should humble us. We shouldn't be getting on our pedestals and be like, oh, we know better than you guys. You guys are just a bunch of idiots. If you just listen to us, we'll just keep shouting out into the darkness and eventually you will hear us. No, it should humble us because if God didn't transfer you and me out of that, we would continue to be confused too. So let's have empathy and have our hearts break for people 
who are confused, people in your life, people in my life I know who are confused about their identity. Does it make me angry sometimes? Yeah. At them? No. But at Satan who confuses them. And there are two ways in our world we seek to find our identity. There's two sides of the spectrum. The first is what we might call group identity. And that's typically what happens in more traditional societies. So think about this. You are who your family or your tribe says you are. So you're a shoemaker or a blacksmith or a carpenter. Why? Because dad was a shoesmith. Sorry, shoemaker. Dad was a blacksmith. Dad was a carpenter. Or you're a Jew or a Roman Catholic. Why? Because your family is those things. So back to Moana, and I don't want to keep bringing back Moana. Love the movie. Thought it was awesome. I watch it, sing it. Actually do a really good job singing it, as you've heard. But Moana is supposed to become the next chief of the tribe. Why? Because her dad was the chief of the tribe. It's the expectation of the tribe that she would then be the chief of the tribe. See, you think, you act, you behave in certain ways, not because you think it's a good idea or what you want to do when it comes to, when it comes to group identity. It's because you want to make your family or tribe proud. So maybe non-Western societies, you think about like honor and shame cultures. You don't want to bring shame to the family. And this might seem backwards to us at times, but I have to say, like, we're actually drawn to tribes too, aren't we? Like, how many times did you immediately stop listening to a politician simply because in parentheses after their name, there was a certain letter? After their name, there's parentheses, and inside that parentheses was the letter D. So you're just like, ah. You didn't evaluate the opinion. You didn't evaluate the policy. You just said, up, oh, letter D, no thanks. And don't, let's not act like it doesn't go the other way. My Democrat friends, oh, there's a letter R after a name, ah. You don't evaluate the policy. You don't evaluate the opinion. You don't listen to what they say. You go, up, oh, letter R, no thanks. Why? Because my tribe doesn't think like that. He's not part of my tribe. She's not part of my tribe. So therefore, no thanks. Or how many of us mask or don't mask? Or get vaxxed or don't get vaxxed simply because our tribe did or didn't? Both sides. Let's not act like it's either way, like one side. I talk to all my vax friends who are like, oh, the unvax, oh my gosh. I'm like, well, dude, like... Let's not act like you're the epidemiologist all of a sudden. And I've seen it go the other way too. We do these things because our tribes say so. And so maybe that's a little raw for you right now, right? Maybe a little uncomfortable. It's a little raw. So let me just bring it back home for a second. How many of us simply hate a player on the Cowboys just because he's a Cowboy? How many of us hate somebody who's on the Celtics just because they're a Celtic? How many of us hate somebody who lives in New York just because they live in New York? They're a New Yorker. 
We do tribes all the time. We do group identity all the time. And group identity isn't completely bad. Don't hear me say that because the Bible does say when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're not just united to him personally, you're not united to his family. There's a group identity. But building your identity off of a group's identity isn't very loving or freeing. Because what ends up happening is if your family or your tribe doesn't like what you do, they disown you. Because you've chosen to have another occupation than dad had. Or you have a different political opinion. Is that really loving? If you disagree with me, I'm going to disown you. You do something that doesn't go with what the tribe or the family wants, I disown you. That's not very loving. Parents, we might often say, and kids, you might hear your parents say about friends who kind of disown you. Like, if they were really your friends, they wouldn't have disowned you just because you stood up for yourself. But it's also not freeing. Group identity is also not freeing because you're constantly seeking the approval of others. You're seeking the approval of mom or you're seeking the approval of dad or you want your tribe to approve of you or your friends to approve of you. So it's approval that you want, but it's also approval you may never get. You may never hear dad say, I'm proud of you. And yet you're building your life to make dad proud, to make the family proud. So there's group identity, but there's also individual identity, which is probably what we most do here in Western culture. It's the other side of the spectrum. And in this, you determine who you are, right? You think about this. You hear this all the time. You determine who you are. You determine your identity. And anyone who tells you otherwise is a bigot or is hurtful, and you should remove them from your life. But there are at least two major problems with you determining your own identity. One, if someone disagrees with you and is automatically bigoted and hurtful, and you surround yourself with yes men all the time, people who are always going to tell you what you want, people who are always in the same echo chamber as you, you'll never actually grow, will you? Like, it's good sometimes to tell your kids no. They're not going to fall apart. They'll actually grow by you telling them no. Johnny, you should not stick your fingers in a socket. No, don't do that. It's good for them. So you'll never grow if you're always having people surround you that are going to say, yeah, good job, pat you on the back, keep going, kid. And your relationships will never go very deep. And frankly, it's not very loving either. It's not very loving for people to see what's going on in your life and not allow them to talk to you and, and give you advice that's counter to what you want to do. It's not very loving. It's not very loving for them to not give it to you because you're unwilling to listen. And secondly, you're going to be crushed under the weight of that kind of pursuit. If you're always going to, you have to determine your identity. It, rem, it reminds me of like when Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, he's running from that boulder. Do you remember that scene? where he's running from the boulder, and he's got to sprint. He has to run fast enough to make sure that he doesn't get crushed by the boulder. But so much of finding identity in our culture, in individualistic culture like ours, is like, find out who you are. Who are you? What's your identity? Figure it out, Evan. you got to figure it out. Come on, man. What's your identity? Who are you? And there's all this pressure for you to figure it out. So you got to do it before the boulder crushes you because the expectation is that you got to figure it out. And if you don't, we're going to crush you, man. 
So we run and we run and we run to find out who we are, but then we're too exhausted by the pursuit and the expectation that you find your identity catches up to you and it crushes you. And that's not, frankly, a very freeing way to live your life. So like group identity, though, individual identity isn't all bad. The Bible does say that God has created us in his image, that we have the imago Dei, and so we all have inherent dignity, value, and worth on an individual level. But both ways of finding our identity on their own and operating under, in Satan's domain are unloving, are not freeing, because they have to be achieved. See, it's up to you to achieve your identity, whether group identity or individual identity. You have to achieve it. So group identity, you have to achieve an attaboy from the tribe, or you have to get an I'm proud of you from dad. Or as an individual identity, you have to achieve determining who you are. you got to figure it out, man. And both live under this pressure to be deemed worthy of presentation. I have to achieve being presentable that I'm worthy to be presented to the tribe, I'm worthy to be presented to my world. So either my parents can show me off when they flip through the little thing on their, well, I guess nobody does that in their wallets anymore, but on the phone, right, look at my kids, oh, look what Evan's doing, isn't he awesome? He makes mom so proud. Or I have to constantly present myself or the identity that I am to the world on social media or whatever else. But a transformed identity isn't achieved by us. It's received by us. So when you jump back into verse 13 in Colossians, listen, we're going to start again, read that again, and we'll jump into verse 20. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things are created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I didn't take SEPTA a lot in high school, but every once in a while I would have to take SEPTA. It's always, it's always an experience to take SEPTA. And I sometimes had to take a couple of buses to get from school to my house. So I would grab one bus to go south on Bustleton Avenue, then I would grab the second bus to go west on Cotman Avenue. My mom typically would pick me up after the first bus, but occasionally I had to transfer to a second bus. And when you would get on board of the bus, you would pay, you give your token for that bus, and you ask for a transfer. Could I please have a transfer? And you had to pay $2 at the time. The transfer, you need to get a transfer slip. The transfer has a cost to it. And so when I made the transfer, then I would be able to get onto a different bus going a different direction than I did on the first bus. And since we were born in Satan's kingdom, God has done something for us. He's delivered us, and he's also transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And in that kingdom... Jesus is a king of that kingdom. He's the king of that kingdom. And he's the preeminent king, which means simply that he holds first place. First place of all creation. Not that he was created first, but that he's above all creation. He created all things, Colossians says. He's in first place over the church. 
He's in first place as the first to rise from the dead. And not only that, he's God himself. Paul says, he's the image of the invisible God. And Paul also says, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're given a new identity. You receive redemption, forgiveness, and reconciliation from God. And you're now going a different direction than you were before. But there's a cost for God to make the transfer. And that cost was Jesus' own blood. Verse 20 says, And by Jesus' blood, you've been transferred to a different kingdom. You now can go in a different direction. And you receive a transformed identity born out of love, God's love for you, and one that sets you free from Satan's kingdom of death, sin, shame, guilt, and confusion. And then you, so lastly, you have the purpose of a transformed identity, which is, picks up in verse 21. And you who were once alienated, a hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The reason Jesus transforms, transforms your identity is so that you can become who you're really meant to be. Jesus transforms us so, did you catch that? Jesus transforms us so he can present us. He does all the work. He transforms and presents. He presents us as holy means that we're set apart for him. Blameless means he treats us without, as if we're out without defect. There's nothing wrong with us. And he presents us as above approach, as people of character. So in this, it's not, my, it's not up to me to achieve my identity. It was achieved for me. And all I have to do is receive it. That's what John says in his gospel, in John chapter 1. We receive the identity. And Jesus makes us presentable. Not my group, not my tribe, not my family, and not me. See, for you and I to flourish, it's like a rose bush. We have to cut the dead pieces off so the rose bush can bloom. There are parts of us that are dead. There are parts of us that have to be cut off, that remain from the, the domain of darkness. They have to be trimmed away so you and I can live out our identity in Christ. And when we begin to live out our identity in Christ, we're given courage to live our lives in such a way that we don't need the approval of others because we receive God's approval. So mom, dad, our friends, or our tribe, or our preferred political party, or the football team we cheer for, may not love it, but you can be strong as you're strengthened in all power and do it with joy when you get the blowback. Or you're given courage to say no to impulses that you might perceive as me just being me. I've determined this who I am, so therefore I'm going to give in to my impulses. I'm going to do whatever I want and do what's out of line with what God wants. And instead, you can prioritize pleasing Jesus, and he works to make you holy, blameless, and above approach. And this is loving and freeing. It's loving because Jesus loves you enough to die for you even when you were alienated, even when you were hostile in mind, even when you were doing evil deeds. He loved you enough to die for you. That's truly loving. That's true love. 
And it's freeing because you break out of the spectrum of group and individual identity. And you're set on a more freeing plane in the kingdom of God where you can flourish and grow into who you're meant to be. So the love and freedom we're looking for is ours. But it comes with a big if. To wrap up, look at Colossians 1.23. If, this is yours, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul doesn't say if because he wants you to be afraid, like you're going to lose your salvation if you don't, if you're not perfect, if you don't meet the mark all the time. But he's reminding us that if our identity has been transformed, we should see ourselves being continually transformed by the Holy Spirit. Because transformed people keep transforming. So the love and freedom of transforming in Christ is yours if you want it. But it's the only thing. If I can plead with you, if I can beg you, if I can challenge you and encourage you, it's the only thing that's going to give you the love and freedom that you're looking for. Let's pray.